I'm looking at two images right now, both of which we're seeking to promote the Star Chamber. The one image is a bright and colorful one, and it shows a benevolent king receiving his willing and happy subjects. There are bright yellows, reds, and blues, and even flowers and a lion. In the other image, though, there's a row of men and women in silhouettes looking down on us from a huge wooden bench, a judicial bench, that is, and an ominous light in the shape of a star. You might be asking yourself, what kind of idiot designer was hired to create such an ominous image if he or she was trying to conjure up positive feelings about the Star Chamber? Well, it's probably worth noting that while the first image with the king was made in 1504, the second one's a movie poster. And the tagline on the movie reads, quote, They are the most powerful members of our community. They have a shattering secret, a secret that will affect us all. Only one man is willing to stop them. On August 5th, you'll know who they really are. End quote. See, both the Founding Fathers and Michael Douglas had a strong dislike for the Star Chamber. If you listened to earlier episodes, uh, you'll know that the Star Chamber was the court in the English law where the government abused its judicial powers. But in the 1983 mystery thriller, The Star Chamber, Michael Douglas is a judge on what are effectively secret government tribunals and comes around to start to realize that something is wrong with the legal system he's operating in. You'll have to watch the film to find out if Michael Douglas's character, Steve Judge Harden, uh, gets anywhere. But it's interesting to think that actual people existed that were like Douglas's character. John Pym was the leader of the Long Parliament and led the charge to disassemble the Star Chamber after it became more and more apparent of the king's abuses that were taking place there. Even though the court was abolished with the Habeas Corpus Act of 1640, uh, the abuses that took place there were still fresh in the minds of our founding fathers, and it led uh, to many of the protections that provided people, or that are provided people today in the judicial system, including the ones in the Sixth Amendment, which is the topic for today's show. I'm Cole, and this is Political Theory. Now, the Sixth Amendment to the United States Constitution reads, quote, In all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury of the state and district wherein the crime shall have been committed, which district shall have been previously ascertained by law, and to be informed of the nature and cause of the accusation, to be confronted with witnesses against him, to have compulsory process for obtaining witnesses in his favor, and to have the assistance of counsel for his defense, end quote. I think we ought to jump right in by looking at each of those clauses individually, but an apology up front. This episode doesn't include the same amount of audio clips and debates that some of the other episodes do. A lot of the Sixth Amendment isn't heavily debated in the same way that other topics in the Bill of Rights are, and as a result, I wasn't able to find a lot of audio clips for what debates there were. With that said, let's tackle the first question. What qualifies as speedy? The idea of the right to a speedy trial being guaranteed goes back to the Assize of Clarendon, where it can be first identified, at least in English law, that a trial should happen speedily. The Assize of Clarendon lays out framework for what happens if, quote, justices shall not be able to come quickly enough into the country, end quote, to read the Assize directly. On top of that, the English Habeas Corpus Act of 1679 required timely hearings while the accused were on bail. It made sense that our founding fathers put the clause into the amendment. If government can hold a person indefinitely, then they can effectively control and ruin that person's life. The Speedy Trial Clause stops government from holding people as long as they wish, and you know, stops them from enforcing control over somebody's life unnecessarily or abusively. 
In the United States, the right to a speedy trial was dealt with in the 1972 Supreme Court case Barker v. Wingo. Two men were arrested for the murder in, of a Kentucky couple, and the police identified the two main suspects as Willie Barker and Silas Manning. The prosecution decided to take Manning to court before Barker, feeling that the case against Manning was the strongest of the two, and convinced that if Manning was convicted, he might be inclined to testify against Barker. It took four years to convict Manning due to continuous setbacks, and during that time, the prosecution for Barker, the other man, continuously delayed Barker's trial, 14 times before Barker finally objected, and when the prosecution delayed Barker's trial for a 15th time, the counsel began to object on the basis that his speedy trial rights were violated. The court created a four-pronged test to be used in deciding on a case-by-case -case basis whether a defendant had their speedy trial right violated. The first prong, if you will, is the length of the delay. Again, case-by-case -case basis means that there isn't a set deadline, but a year is the general time frame that most prosecutors will abide by. Second, the reason for a delay. Right? Delaying a trial for the purpose of obtaining a witness is considered a reasonable reason for delay of a trial, but the prosecution can't delay a trial simply for the sake of it. And third, the time and manner in which the defendant has asserted his or her right. And that effectively means that if a defendant decides to delay a trial, they can't retroactively claim their constitutional right to a speedy trial was violated. And fourth, the decree of prejudice to the defendant uh, which the delay has caused. And it's, that effectively means that if the prosecution is trying to hold out a trial because the only witness who could bring down their case is an elderly man on the brink of death and the prosecution is convinced that they can delay the trial long enough for the witness to, you know, kick the can to be unable to testify because he's dead, then that's a pretty big degree of prejudice to the, to the defendant. Subsequently, that kind of thing would be considered a violation. But uh, the court in Barco v. Wingo also conceded that something like the speedy trial clause must be dealt with on a case-by-case -case basis, and subsequently they wouldn't put any definitive limits or uh, standards on it. Every state has, in one capacity or another, laws, provisions, or acts that limit the amount of time that the accused can be held without trial. On the federal level, the Speedy Trial Act of 1974 uh, says that the information or the indictment it must be filed within 30 days from the arrest or service of the summons, to quote Wikipedia. Now, the next clause says that trials must be public, the definition of which I think it must be acknowledged is vastly different from when the Constitution was written, in the same way that new technologies changed what privacy meant, like uh, what we talked about in the Fourth Amendment. Social media, television, and plenty more have changed what public means as well. The Founding Fathers would have been eager to include a clause requiring public trials. England, for a long time, like we talked about at the beginning of the episode, used the Star Chambers to convict people, uh, political and personal enemies, basically, of the throne. King Charles I used the Star Chambers to persecute his enemies, including the Puritans, and then trials were held in secret, and over time, the Star Chambers evolved into a symbol of abuse and an overly powerful government. The Supreme Court actually once wrote, quote, The Star Chamber has for centuries symbolized disregard of basic individual rights, end quote. So the framers of the Constitution, hoping to avoid the kind of secret tribunals that had plagued England, made sure to include uh, clauses saying that their new government could not abuse the legal liberties provided to them, uh, with them to secretly persecute political enemies with no substantive cause. It's Professor Lawrence Tribe of the Harvard Law School who writes, quote, The Constitution is a theater of justice, wherein a vital social drama is staged. If its doors are locked, the public can only wonder whether the solemn ritual of communal condemnation has been properly performed, end quote. But for obvious reasons, a trial can't always be public. Consider a trial about rape. Right? Many women would object to having fully public trials in which details about something as intimate and personal as rape are disclosed. When, the Rolling uh, when Rolling Stone published an article about rape on the University of Virginia campus, and it looked like prosecutions might begin for some of the men who were thought to be involved, a group on the campus put out a paper on how to deal with college rape. 
included among their recommendations was for the administration to pursue private trials for the alleged rapists. Uh, quote, one hurdle to pursuing criminal resolution may be, painstaking, may be the painstaking public nature of trials. Introducing privacy to that path uh, could make it more attractive, end quote. And they went on to note that the administration could advocate to Richmond, where UVA is, for private trials in court. Perhaps even more obvious, though, uh, is because many trials, especially suits against the government, might include sensitive or classified information that cannot be made public. It's not to say that compromises haven't been struck before. And one of the most controversial is the silent witness rule. The rule allows either side to show jurors a piece of evidence in private and then publicly in the trial refer to it in code. For a long time, the silent witness rule was only a hypothetical. It was a hypothetical way to deal with the need to balance constitutionality with privacy and respect. But then in 2004, news broke about a man named Lawrence Franklin. Larry to his friends, Franklin worked for the Pentagon and had been exchanging classified information with two lobbyists for a group known as the American Israel Public Affairs Committee. From 1999 to 2004, Franklin provided them with the information that he had unlawfully obtained, although in 2003 he agreed to act as an FBI informant. When the government took uh, the whole lot of them to trial, they faced a clear dilemma. How were they going to show the evidence of what was leaked to, in order to communicate the severity of the information? Um, how were they going to show that to jurors while conducting a public trial? The information, not all of which had been made public, was still classified. They decided to employ the silent witness rule. Many people think that the silent witness rule should be employed in cases more widely. One common argument goes that it can bring justice to situations that the government would otherwise be able to dismiss on the grounds of containing classified information. Take German citizen Khaled al-Masri. In 2003, he was in Macedonia on vacation when he was arrested by CIA officers and taken to a CIA prison in Kabul, where he was subsequently tortured and beaten. Eventually, he was released, and uh, when he brought a lawsuit against the government, it was denied on states' secret privileges, meaning that al-Masri's suit was dismissed in its entirety on the basis that it would reveal classified information. And the government has denied people trial on plenty of other occasions by invoking state secrets privilege. As Jonathan M. Lamb wrote in the Pepperdine Law Review, quote, The state secrets privilege prevented litigation of claims of unconstitutional and illegal wiretapping, illegal firings of CIA and executive branch whistleblowers, FBI surveillance of a 12-year-old boy, discrimination in intelligence agencies, and psychological operations, among others, end quote. Many argue that the silent witness rule mitigates the ability of government to silence citizens and thus helps hold government in check. Without it, government would be able to deny potential challenges to their potential abuses. The silent witness rule is not without its opposition, though, and there is plenty of that. When a district judge approved the use of the silent witness rule against Jeffrey Sterling, a CIA employee who was arrested for leaking classified information to journalists, Sterling's counsel protested the decision, saying, quote, the silent witness rule and other security measures that the government seeks to use are highly prejudicial to Mr. Sterling and deprive him of his right to a fair trial and violate his confrontation rights as guaranteed by the United States Constitution. End quote. Part of the reason that the clause guaranteeing a public trial exists is so that citizens can verify their themselves that justice is being upheld correctly. But if the public doesn't understand the severity of the leaks, it takes away a critical part of the public to understand uh, cases like the Sterling case, and to understand if their justice system is being handled properly. And that's probably one of the huge re uh, reasons why such a massive debate still rages on among legal communities about the silent witness rule. Now, the next clause guarantees somebody the right to an impartial jury, and we'll be looking at a larger debate on whether or not a jury is actually the best option for trying people on the next episode when we talk about the Seventh Amendment. And part of that will include impartiality, but 
Uh, for now, I want to consider whether or not the clause guaranteeing impartiality and the clause right after that, which guarantees that a person has the right to a trial in the area in which the crime occurred, well, whether or not those two clauses are contradictory. The problem with guaranteeing impartiality and a right to have a trial in the place of the crime is that typically the place where the crime is committed is the place where people have the strongest feelings about whatever the crime was. It's the place where the strongest prejudices and emotions are present, and that can affect the way that uh, people think. It can affect people's mindset, depending on the severity and extent of the crime. It can often be difficult to find people who aren't affected, especially on serious crimes where, uh, you know, people's life and death hangs in the balance if it's something like the death penalty. Take the Boston bombing, for instance. In the final days before his trial, Jokar Sarnayev, uh, his counsel, I mean, submitted a final plea to the court, arguing that the location of the trial ought to be removed because the 75 final candidates for the jury contained biases that would affect the outcomes. These, of course, were the 75 jurors in the city of Boston that the court had determined were best fit to serve on the jury and maintain the notion of impartiality. In uh, Sarnayev's final plea, they noted that 76 of the percent of the 75 jurors had some connection to the events, people, and or the places that were at the issue. And 64% of them, 64% of what were considered to be the most non-biased jurors, either believed that Mr. Sarnayev was guilty or had a self-identified connection with uh, people who believe very strongly that he was guilty, or both, based on the questionnaires that were filled out. On top of that, every day when the jurors left the courthouse, they were surrounded by protesters holding signs that read things like, Boston Strong, and uh, this is our effing city. To expect jurors to be impartial when the Boston bombing consumed the city in such an emotional, extensive way is ludicrous, and scenarios such as these are not at all uncommon. It's Really pretty common for communities to come together when a tragedy occurs. Just think of all the vigils that you see after tragic instances like mass shootings, right? It creates a sense of community, and that community is centered around a very strict ideology, guilt on that person, and it can compel jurors to vote in line with their community. The Boston bombing is just one of many cases where evidence can be found to support the argument that holding trials in the place where the crime occurs actually infringes upon the impartiality that's guaranteed to defendants. But... Holding a trial in the place where the crime was committed also provides a number of benefits. On a practical level, witnesses to the crime who would likely live in the area don't have to travel if we did hold the trial somewhere else, and it would probably have to be somewhere reasonably far away in order to escape whatever the local biases are, then we do risk the strain that travel can have on people, and that would affect the quality of the witnesses and their condition. The economic costs of transporting witnesses and other people who would testify at the trial in one capacity or another would be another big issue. It would be unfair to put that economic burden on law firms because the legal costs would go through the roof and it would severely limit the amount of people who can afford legal protections. That would likely mean that the costs would fall to the government and that would be a huge tax, uh, or that would be a huge burden on taxpayers. On top of that, people who live there and understand the area are certainly better positioned to be able to understand the defendant's life better. What might look like suspicious behavior to somebody in San Francisco might not be all that out of the ordinary for somebody living in Oklahoma, and somebody who lives in Oklahoma is in a better position to understand that. Still, with new technologies like video chat, a debate about whether or not we should continue to have uh, trials in the location of the crime could become a more feasible option, and it could become a more serious conversation in the future, especially for crimes that carry the weight of the death penalty, like the Boston bombing did. Now, the next clause, uh, dealing with the right of the defendant to be informed of the nature and cause of their arrest, seems pretty straightforward. It's another one of those clauses which deal uh, with stopping the ability of an abusive government. It gives the defendant and his or her counsel a chance, a fighting chance at acquittal. The next clause is that the accused have the right to, quote, be confronted with the witnesses against him, end quote. 
the clause was really has historically been viewed as a protection against hearsay, out-of-court evidence. The government, prosecution, or defense can't just make up claims. They can't just say that Dave saw Joe rob that store, but Dave couldn't be here today because of his family vacation. The Confrontation Clause of the Sixth Amendment stops the court from having to date counsel's word that somebody said something or saw something incriminating. It allows for cross-examination of witnesses. It gives counsel a chance to challenge what could be false claims. The idea that the accused have a right to face their accusers face-to-face goes back a long way. It can be found in Shakespeare, English common law, and even the Bible. But there, there is an exception or two to the Confrontation Clause that have arisen over the years. For the first, uh, really the only main one, we have to go back to 1770, even before we had won the war. Two cousins, well, second cousins, are going at it in the Boston courthouse over whether or not Patrick Carr is a credible source in a trial. The cousins were Samuel Adams and John Adams, and you might be wondering why the two of them didn't just cross-examine Carr and let the jury decide his credibility. They could have, if they had wanted to dig up a dead body, that is. See, Patrick Carr had been one of the five people killed during the Boston Massacre when British troops opened fire onto a crowd. The troops claimed that they had been provoked and had received orders to fire, and so a fight broke out between the colonists and the troops. Carr, on his deathbed, had confessed to Samuel Hemingway, his surgeon, that the troops were provoked, which would work towards securing their acquittal. Hemingway, in the trial, is quoted as saying thus about Carr. He then particularly said he forgave the man, whoever he was that shot him, that he was satisfied he had no ballast, but fired to defend himself. End quote. So the question became, should Carr's dying declaration be admissible in court? The justices overseeing the case decided to admit Carr's testimony's evidence, which infuriated Samuel Adams, but left it up to the jury to decide the authenticity of the statements. Ultimately, Tar, uh, Carr's testimony was critical in proving the innocence of the troops who had fired at the colonists. Many people think that admitting dying declarations to trial violates the Sixth Amendment because it doesn't give the opposite counsel a chance to cross-examine the statements and verify them, thus meaning that there's no way to prove that anything that counsel, or the counsel who submitted the dying declaration is true. On the other hand, we often entrust that somebody on their deathbed is telling the truth, for whatever various reasons that might be. There's a Latin saying from the medieval English courts that goes, Nemo moritus praesimitum mentiri, which translates as no one on the point of death should be presumed to be lying. Now, the last two clauses of the Sixth Amendment, the right to a compulsory process for obtaining witnesses and the right to assistance of counsel, are pretty straightforward as well. The former says that the defendants have the right to get witnesses, and if a witness refuses to comply, then there are proceeds in place uh, that require them to show up. The right to summon a witness is not absolute, though. In Taylor v. Illinois in 1988, the court upheld that there are procedural rules that outweigh uh, the right to a compulsory witness system. In the Taylor case, a murder trial was being called into question. Uh, before the trial had started, the defendant was required to submit a list of witnesses that it would use, uh, it would use, required to submit that to the prosecution. But on the second day of the trial, the defendant, or his counsel really, tried to admit two additional witnesses who had not been on that list. The judge would not allow the witnesses to be admitted. The question of whether or not the two additional witnesses should be let into the court to testify reached the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court ultimately agreed that because they were not filed originally, the judge had a right to deny them. The need to follow the rules uniformly and use the tools granted to the defendants responsibly outweighed the claims of the defense and his counsel that they were being denied their Sixth Amendment rights, the court ruled. The last clause is pretty straightforward as well. It guarantees defendants the right to have legal representation. The clause works towards stopping socioeconomic division by ensuring that everyone has a lawyer, not just those who can afford it, and stops the government's ability to deny people representation and then try them unfairly. You'd be hard-pressed to find a candidate widely supported by voters who argued in favor of things like secret government tribunals, denying citizens justice and due process, fabricating witnesses, and so on. 
even though most people probably don't know about any of the specific abuses that took place in the Star Court, most will still argue against it, or at least its ideals, if not specifically the court itself. The idea of an abusive government is something that was prominent in John Pym's mind when he rallied against the Star Court, just as much as it was in George Washington, John Adams, and most of the citizens today whenever we talk about our justice system. On the next episode, we're also talking about our justice system, but instead we'll be talking about juries and looking at some of the debates about them when we break down the Seventh Amendment. Thanks so much for listening, and email us your thoughts at politicaltheorypodcast at gmail.com. Visit our website, politicaltheorypodcast.com, and check us out on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks. Thank <laughs> you.